0: Welcome back to the Black Minutes Podcast. I am your host, Rachel Weaver, and I am here with my other host.
1: Late Bird, happy to be on the show, and we're really excited about the guests that we have uh, for this week.
0: Yes, we have an icon who we've spoken about many times on this podcast, <laughs> who you guys are finally getting to meet, the one and only Dr. Chica Brew.
2: Hey, it's great to, ha- great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Yes.
1: Um, so we're going to we're gonna talk a little bit more about you and where you're from and all of that in just a second. Um, but before we do that, we wanted to jump into the menace moment. And, um, you know, I've mentioned before that I'm trying to reach out and learn about more people than just black people. Because for such a long time, um, like that was like all I cared about is learning about black mm-hmm. history. Um, but I realized that, you know, like there are so many marginalized groups in the United States and I want to learn more about each and every one of them. So this week, the menace moment is about Kalpana Chawla. And I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, but she was the first woman of Indian descent to go into space. Uh, and she served as a mission specialist and a primary robotic arm operator on the Space Shuttle Columbia. So Kalpana was born March 17, 1962 in Karnal, Haryana, India. And as a young girl, she used to go and watch planes at local flying clubs with her dad. Um, and that inspired her to, uh, you know, later go on to get a degree um, of engineering. In aer- so she got a, a Bachelor of Aeronautical Engineering uh, from Punjab Engineering College in India. And then in 1982, she moved to U.S. and obtained a Master of Science in Aerospace Engineering from UTA, University of Texas, Arlington. And she got that in 1984. Um, and then in 1988, she started working at NASA. Um, and she did computational fluid dynamics um, and research on vertical and short takeoff la- and landing concepts, which that's so far beyond my understanding, right? But it's pretty amazing. Um, to, you know to be have been working for NASA and doing all of that. Um, so it says a lot of her research included um, is included in technical journals and conference papers. Um, in 1993, she joined Overset Methods Incorporated as a vice president and a research scientist, and there she specialized in The simulation of moving multiple body problems. Um, Then she also held a certified flight instructor rating for airplanes, gliders, and commercial pilot licenses for single and multi-engine airplanes, seaplanes, and gliders. So highly qualified. Um, She became a naturalized citizen in 1991. And then when she did that, she applied for the NASA Astronaut Corps and was accepted and joined in 1995. And then in 1997, she was selected for her first flight And so then on November 19th, 1997, she became the first Indian woman in space. Mm. Um, And, uh, you know, she was a robotic arm operator. So she, you know, handled that while she was there and she came back. In 2000, she was selected for her second flight into space. um, And that one was delayed for several reasons, you know, like technical issues. um, There Mm -hmm. were, you know, different problems with uh, the body of the the shuttle that they were going to be using. So it was delayed for about three years. But um, finally, in January 2003, she returned to space on her second flight. Unfortunately, um, on re-entry, the Columbia spacecraft disintegrated in the Earth's atmosphere, and she was one of seven astronauts that died on February 1st, 2003. She was posthumously oh. posthumously awarded the Congressional Space Medal of Honor, um, and then several streets and like university buildings and institutions have been named in her honor. And she is regarded as a national hero in India. So an intergalactic menace called Panachala. So it was cool to learn about her.
0: Yeah, that's good information and and important. I love when we highlight just the different areas of ways that people are like um, kind of pioneering in their fields just because there's so many interests of mine people of color and like i said kind on the podcast last time we all don't have to do the same thing we all need to you know go to those areas that that are interest us and try to be menaces and pioneers and paving the way in in those industries so i love this sad that she passed away though
1: mm-hmm. very sad but she
0: left her mark mm-hmm. okay um dr rude do you want to give a little intro about who you are Um, Yourself, and then we'll head into the questions we have for you.
2: Sure, my name's Dr. Jacob Rue. I'm an associate professor of sociology at Brigham Young University. I've lived here in Utah for about 11 years. Um, uh, My wife and I, we met in New York City right after 9-11, and we have five children, uh, four of them born in New Jersey. And I was raised on the south side of Chicago um, in the neighborhoods of Hyde Park and Woodlawn near the University of Chicago.
0: Okay, beautiful. Me and Dr. actually working with the high school is where I went to middle school. Interesting experience. So that that's kind of fun that we walked the same halls.
2: Yes, Kenwood High School, <laughs> home of the Broncos. <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs> and my mom also went there too. My mom graduated. From there.
2: That's right. Good for her. Mm-hmm.
1: And then Dr. Rue, you were telling me that you and Rachel actually met before she ever came to BYU.
2: Yes, uh, the first time I met Rachel was when she gave a sacrament meeting talk in the Hyde Park ward, in uh, uh, that was August twenty fifteen, when Ronald yeah. I believe was on his mission and he, he went to mm-hmm. mi- Mississippi right. Yep. Uh huh. And you went next door to Alabama a few years later. Yep. So I thought, well, maybe this young lady will go to BYU someday. And, you and then did. I did.
0: And yeah. I'm like, oh, we met. I'm dead. I didn't know. I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> <That's>
2: <laughs> yeah. Funny. Yep. But part of growing up there is why my research just introduced myself a little bit more focuses on racial segregation and housing and uh, immigration as well, because I grew up in an area around the university with people from all over the world, but importantly, with a legacy of severe racial segregation in Chicago. And uh, Hyde Park is one of the three communities out of over 77 in Chicago that is uh, racially integrated. Mm-hmm. It's very rare in Chicago to have a more integrated school, neighborhood, and church, especially in our church. Um, and so that's something that had a profound impact on me the rest of my life and led to a lot of the research questions that I asked later on.
0: Yeah, because that was kind of one of our first questions that you kind of already have answered. But um, just so that the listeners know, what other areas of research have you done or like you are experiencing an expert in?
2: Yeah. So I'd say the three main areas are uh, racial discrimination and mortgage lending and housing. I've been an expert on 10 civil rights cases uh, that go back to the Fair Housing Act, fair lending cases, wow. um, including, ba- uh, uh, excuse me, Wells Fargo, Baltimore, Baltimore, v- <coughs> Baltimore v. Wells Fargo. Good old Wells Fargo. Uh, yeah, which has had a pattern and practice of discrimination many courts have found. Um, and I've also worked a lot on the relationship between homeownership and immigration. And my research on how uh, Latinos were deported at very high rates led to the housing crisis being much worse for them, the 2008-2012 crisis. And um, it was used in a court case to protect uh, what's called uh, TPS, Temporary Protected Status, for Haitians and Salvadorans in a federal court. And so I was really grateful to see my research used for good in that regard. Um, And then I've got a new line of research that uh, is working with other collaborators, such as uh, Grace Solberg, who was also a student of mine on the BYU Slavery Project. She's now at BYU Special Collections, by the way, in a new position there as a diversity archivist and much more. And uh, that looks a lot at Black LDS people and their agency using the framework of W.E.B. Du Bois, who was a founding sociologist as well as a founder of the NAACP. And um, we're very excited about that work. And hope to hear back. And whether or not it's accepted for publication sooner or later, that's the hard thing about being an academic. It takes a long time for your mm-hmm. work to get published. Yeah, that's true, that's true. Yeah, this ain't no tech company, as we say. <laughs> this, ain't <no laughs> this ain't no McDonald's, as I tell my kids. My work, my work does not come out right when you demand it. So, so I'm hopeful that this year that will come out. There's a lot of really great work uh, being done. Uh, by black LDS people and people in collaboration with them, publishers and um, edited volumes. Um, And so we just think this paper is another example of that interracial collaboration. So we're excited about that. And I've had an opportunity to look at
1: some of that research. And I I was telling you earlier that it's very uh, gratifying to read and to see my experience, you know, kind of reflected on paper and and see that research that has gone into it. Um, And just kind of being able to I don't know if quantify is the right word or classify my experience just Mm -hmm. kind of put it down and and read Mm -hmm. it and say yes that's me you know that that's that's what i've experienced as a member of the church um it it was good to see that and really gratifying as well so thank you for doing that research
2: oh anytime every day yes i I love research
0: he he does love research and one thing that i think is really cool about dr room is that you are a quantitative researcher, not that other sociologists aren't, um, but that's just something that you're very big on and everything you do, you love the numbers, which I think is really important to research, not just you know people's experiences and words, but you're like, let's get the actual raw numbers. Let's show people, here's what it is. And you, you can't deny the numbers. You can't um, really say that those things didn't happen and aren't true and aren't impacting communities when you have the data that you have and the way you bring that into your classes and the way you bring that into conversations you have about race um, and just even with anything like he has his own um, research page dedicated to what happened on January 6th and, the, yeah. and things like that. Like you That's you true. bring that into
2: every people. Things. Yes. Yep. like That's even true. We, I forgot about that. Yeah, like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, we can go there later if we yes. want to. Yes. And, and even yep. with
0: um, just looking at voting within Utah, you also look at numbers with that. And so I just wanted to highlight that for the listeners that yeah. Dr. Ruby brings numbers into everything so that people can digest it that right. way. Like we need both sides of the research. because um, There are a lot of researchers who do the other side, right? And that's important and needed. But you're one of those researchers who are like, okay, here are the numbers. And, and why they're important, which I, I appreciate. And you taught me that at an early age in my sociology career, um, my freshman year, you taught me that in. So I, I appreciate that.
1: Yeah. yeah. That. that was one of the things that I loved about your class is that you had facts to back everything up. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if people tried to argue a point or argue a, an opinion or a state of mind, you'd be like, well, these are the facts. You know, you, yeah. can, you can believe what you want, but here's the truth, you know? And so I, I did right. love that. Yeah, so that's that's also a very good part of that.
2: Yeah, we have that duty to share. And a lot of these issues, including January 6th, go back to racial segregation. And uh, and that's why people fought so hard for integration and civil rights in this country. We can't forget that. Mm-hmm. Amen.
0: Okay. Nate, did you want to go with the next question?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So for for you being a professor at BYU, the research that you've done, things like that, what would you say has been the most rewarding thing that you've been able to do thus
2: far? That's a great question. Um, I think one of the most rewarding things I've done at BYU was when we felt very inspired at the end of 2019, after we did the Latino Civil Rights Seminar, which is a great opportunity, uh, along with African American and Native American Civil Rights Seminars. We went to UT Austin, and we visited that campus, and we met professors there. Many of them were involved in public scholarship you know, and activism and so forth. And they had just done an inventory called a racial equity inventory at University of Texas, Austin, Mm. where they documented disparities in salaries, hiring, um, representation, diversity. And we felt like there was nothing like that for BYU. So we prayed Mm. about it and fasted. And we said, we need to do this for BYU. Uh, In the first place, so BYU doesn't turn around and say, well, we don't have a problem or we don't know what the problem is. We need to study it. So what we did... At the beginning of 2020, as we had a research team of over 100 people, we spent over 800 hours. Mm -hmm. We counted everything, like Rachel said, that could be counted. We counted representation among athletes, faculty, students. Um, We we did so many numbers. We interviewed people who went to the SOAR program, the summer of academic Mm -hmm. refinement for uh, juniors in high school, people of color and first gen students. We interviewed international students, DACA students. We did a survey of over 700 students. This is um, good, guys. Mm-hmm. We we did. We even looked at the representation racially among honors students and those who received an honors thesis. Um, yep. We looked at so many things, and we looked at gender as well as the intersection of race. And we prepared that report and delivered it to the academic vice president, the president of BYU, all the deans uh, at the very end of April. I think it was by April 30th, 2020. And just a few, you know, it was not that much later, right, just a few weeks later, George Floyd, um, yep. George Floyd would be murdered, and uh, everything would change. And, and we had to jump on it so that, so that BYU had a lot of data. Uh, there was also positive data on enrollment, uh, increasing enrollment in classes about race and ethnicity and so forth. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, you know, so they didn't have to spend several years trying to study what the problem was. Um, and to their credit, the Committee on Race, Equity, and Belonging came along later that summer um, and followed up on the work that we did they of course had access to more internal data in terms of admissions and so forth, um, and did a beautiful report. You know, way faster than Harvard. A lot of universities did, and that was the first ever university committee that was you know primarily people of color um, in the history of BYU. And our hats are off to them. And um, but that data we felt like was really important that racial equity inventory, <coughs> um, and almost everything that we counted and analyzed was public data. It was just the analysis and tabulation. That was remarkable. Now that was kind of an extra thing. I would have to say, in terms of teaching at BYU, my my favorite experiences are the race ethnicity class and the civil rights seminar. Um mm-hmm. I've been on four civil rights seminar trips. Um two to Alabama and Georgia, one with uh the undergraduates and one with the law school. They had their first trip right. this this past year, and they're gonna do that oh, yeah. every, every year, so I believe. Could. Uh, wonderful experience, have so many trained attorneys and experts on Frederick Douglass uh, from the past all the way to the present, um, people who work for the Civil Rights Division, of the Department of Justice, Professor Michael N. Steele in that case. Um, and then I've also been on a Latino Civil Rights Seminar, two trips to South Texas and Southern California. So those have definitely been huge highlights and very fulfilling. And definitely the number one highlight speaker who ever came to BYU was Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice mm-hmm. Initiative. To meet that man, to shake his hand and give him a hug and tell him thank you was just priceless experience. Um, what a wonderful person. Um, and that feels like a long time ago now, 2018, <laughs> pre-COVID, pre-backlash. Uh, but that was, that was definitely a highlight for me, uh, meeting Dr. King's son as well, MLK third. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really sweet how nervous he was, too, when he came and mm-hmm. talked to everybody. And you could tell he really cared and that he had yeah. had first contact with the church and down in uh, the deep south after, a, I, th- I believe, a tornado uh, went through. And, and the church was helping with the cleanup. And he met representatives from our church back then, from the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, that is. So anyway, those are a few highlights that I've had. We won't go down memory lane with all the highlights, but uh, <laughs> those are some fulfilling experiences, certainly where we felt inspired to do something and felt like what we did make a difference. And I, and I will say one thing about that equity report, just one thing, we counted the devotional speakers who give devotionals yes. at BYU. And to be clear, BYU you know, doesn't choose a lot of the speakers because they come from Salt Lake, the general officers and general authorities, and there's more men who are authorities than women are officers, That's we good. know that. But in terms of the faculty that BYU chooses, after we gave them that data and showed how white and male the speakers were, the, the faculty speakers have been about 40% or more women, uh, which mm-hmm. is even higher than among the faculty. And so I, I know that it's made a difference, and I know we've had you know two black men give a devotional in the space of mm-hmm. two years, which had not happened for 15 years, yeah. with uh, mm-hmm. Professor Ryan Gabriel, my dear colleague, and uh, Elder Peter Johnson. And, uh, you know, that devotional data was really important because you think about the messages that's being sent to young people. Only white men are the sources of authority, spirituality, mm-hmm. uh, interpretation of doctrine. That's not right. Uh, that's not true. That's not what it says in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Uh, God didn't say that. And so that, that, that has been corrected, and there has been a greater representation of the devotionals, especially in the forums, of course, have been diverse for a long time, and the artwork, too. A lot of the buildings at BYU I finally said, we're going to have contests. We're going to have students of color. We're going to pay them. Mm-hmm. We're going to have representation. We're going to have, you know, very interesting ways. Different, different media are not not just paint, but photography, and sculpture. So that also, when we showed the artwork, how lack of diversity. There were really only two buildings at BYU that had good diversity in artwork, and the Wilk and I think in the McKay building were two of them, mm-hmm. and um, and now so many more. And it seems like a little thing, but, you know, when students walk through the whole religion building and all the paintings are just pastoral or just white people, I mean, Mm -hmm. that also sends a message, right? Like, mm -hmm. do do you belong, you know, not just in the physical world, but like Janan Graham-Russell said when she spoke out about this, right? Do people see people in the eternities too? Do they Mm -hmm. think that people of color exist in the afterlife? So that I know has been beautiful to see in parallel alongside the – Proliferation of work around our heavenly mother and the female deity, and there's of course a big intersection there. We're depicting um, Mother Eve and uh, Mother in Heaven as a woman of color as well. Mm-hmm. But there's a, there's a lot of you know thirst out there for new artwork and the arts, and so there's a lot of dimensions to that. So it's, it's great to see progress in that area. All right, I don't want to go professor mode. <laughs> I start going off on one topic. <laughs> That's good though. That's interesting. But yeah. we're grateful that there were a couple areas where you could see you know what i'm saying tangible mm-hmm. improvements after we did that effort
1: absolutely and that's that's good to know i didn't realize that there was a separate uh report from the co report i you know i didn't realize that and that they drew from that data so i'm gonna have to go and see if i can If is that internal or can i find that that's one?
2: internal but most of the public okay. stuff you know mm-hmm. seven eighths of it we can just share with anybody just Makes send me nice. an email
1: okay. yeah that's good so I mean, I've read through the co-rep report multiple times, and were you part of the resource or research for that as well? Or?
2: Not officially. I, of course, lent support and reached out and, and shared data at times, but I um, can't say that I had the honor to be on that team, but I'm so proud of my colleague, Dr. Ryan Gabriel, mm-hmm. uh, who, who was a lead author. Yeah. Uh, and I believe that was a, over a 25,000-word report, mm-hmm. uh, something where that man could have published three articles right there. Yeah, you know, the service and sacrifice to the university as the first African-American, not the first black person, but the first African-American to ever get tenure at BYU. Yep. And um, like I said, BYU did it faster than har- Harvard and some others, you know. And uh, it, it's, um, it's a, it, it just brings godly sorrow to see people forget about it, to not mention it, uh, to not take up all the recommendations, or to act like if we just have office and belonging, that's all we have to do when there's so much more to do. Um, So, you know, good thing we're not any on a sad note. I know you got more questions. (laughs) Yeah, we we, we do have a more sad question right now. That's all right. Um,
0: So we just just I mean, amongst all these wonderful things you do, we know about now the listeners are becoming privy to what has been some of the, you know, just because you are such an agent for change at BYU, you're part of. A group of professors that we consider like like pushing for, you know, new curriculum or Mm. pushing for things to always be more inclusive. What has been some of the, you know, hardest parts or the more challenging parts about being a part of, you know, the group of people who are pushing for change at an institution that historically has just not wanted it or Mm. continues to push back on it?
2: Yeah, I think there's two or three things maximum. I think one thing that became a lot more prevalent. Um, just starting in 2020 is just professors being harassed and targeted, mm. um, being misrepresented, people mm. making complaints to administration, maybe even beyond the general authorities. We don't even know. Um, people being turned down, things approved, you know, mm. um, and then turned down. Um, like I say, the harassment and targeting is just waste a lot of people's time, wasted our supervisor's mm. time. Mm. And for those of us who have tenure already, um, we know it's not going to stop us. But, you know, for the younger faculty who are more likely to be women and Mm -hmm. people of color, you know, you can't tell them 100 percent. That doesn't matter uh, because you just don't know They haven't gotten that tenure yet. Mm -hmm. Um, I haven't seen it be an obstacle, but, you know, you never know for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's that's been part of the national backlash. It's been very hard. I think another thing that has been extremely difficult is to see. A petition with over, I think, 25,000 people signed a petition to have yep. required courses on you know, race, unity, and belonging mm-hmm. required of everybody who graduates. And uh, to see the faculty, so many faculty, like I said, Dr. Gabriel, DJ Gonzalez, people in public health, people in history, people in humanities, the arts, I mean, countless faculty spent five or six years redesigning the general education mm-hmm. at BYU. Mm-hmm. And it was approved at every level, all the way up to the top, and has essentially, we don't know what's happening right now. It's been, it's been stalled for over a year, and, and that's not good either. It just has devastated morale, mm-hmm. and uh, over a year now, maybe vetoed at the highest level, we're not sure. Um, and that's just really sad to see, because we know it's been almost 50 years now 1975 was the last time that BYU did its GE requirements.
1: Goodness mm-hmm. gracious. And it shows, too, because these GEs are abysmal. Yes.
2: And just like, you know, like when people have a car and it adds stuff to it, you know, stuff has been added on. And GE is so confusing at BYU. It people is. don't know how to complete things, or so they just want to get their, you know, generals out of the way. Yeah. And it's not distinctively BYU um, mm. like it could be. And so, you know, 1975, you know, redlining was legal. Right. A uh, woman couldn't sign their own mortgage without a husband. Black
1: people couldn't have the priesthood.
2: Black people couldn't right. have the priesthood. That was the third one I was about to say next. <laughs> or
1: enter the temple. You know what I mean? My goodness.
2: Or entered the temple. And so, and the personal computer wasn't invented yet, right? Like the Apple One, Apple Two, but nobody was even using that yet. Mm-hmm. And so certainly no cell phones or internet, right? And mm-hmm. so, especially with you know, misinformation, quantitative literacy, mm-hmm. uh, you talk about all the good universities, they usually ask a really big question, and then you see how multiple disciplines answer that, that's what the honors program mm-hmm. already does. Um, you can have you know groups of first generation students take classes together, and yep. then um, st- faculty be trained to help them. Yep. I mean, it's so much more than the diversity course, right? Things right. that we need to update and upgrade. Mm-hmm and american heritage and religion all that was left untouched in the current revision so all Mm -hmm. those kind of sacred you know centerpieces to be that was all untouched so that was not you know the issue so that that is um that is difficult i know that there will most likely be a new course on belonging added people already need 120 hours so there goes two more that they have to do a new course on belonging and uh i will be working with hopefully you know the vice president belonging um, Professor Hernandez, mm-hmm. uh, God bless him and his impossible task that he has right now. Right, he's been, um, he's been saddled yeah, with quite a burden to help shape that curriculum for good. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that's that's what's going to happen. So so you know it's like you know the analogy I use is you know the lack of the GE redesign is like no immigration reform in the United States. Uh, you know morally, it should have happened twenty years ago. The Dream Act for young people who are dreamers. It's probably not going to happen in the next five to ten years, so every state is on its own. And states like California, and you know Utah, and New Jersey, and you know others, they're good for immigrants, right? They have things that include them. They can get in-state yeah. tuition, driver's licenses. And some states, like South Carolina, they say you can't even go to college if you're a dreamer, yeah. right? They make it illegal. And so it's kind of like that now in the sense of. Some colleges at BYU have a lot of good course offerings, like the College of Social Science, the law school has let out. But if you're in a lot of colleges where a lot of students need it, those things aren't being offered. It's Mm -hmm. not necessarily, we don't know if it's a priority in hiring, diversifying the faculty. Um, And so you have a greater inequality within the institution. You know what I'm saying? Where people are having a, a, a more of a different experience within BYU across different units. And that just leads to more polarization, misunderstanding, misinformation, miseducation. And so you know how difficult this is in the United States. This is not unique to BYU, these issues about uh, teaching uh, the truth, as, as Nate said earlier, and having data to back that up. This is at issue in Florida that's looking to maybe not have AP courses. I mean, can you imagine? The, right, The backlash from the affluent and rich parents in the suburbs, mm. if they get rid of AP, I, I actually don't think that's going to happen because I think those people have too much power. But I mean, you know, these these issues are broader than just on our campus and are across America. But uh, it is so sad because people are afraid of the truth, but it can be an incredible opportunity to reconcile for people to see eye to eye and to have a healing experience, you know, like Brian Stevenson works shows. So people are afraid of that truth, and that's, and that's difficult. And it's difficult when we don't have all the answers about why things aren't going forward. We have President Kevin Worthen, mm-hmm. and all my inter- interactions have been very positive. Uh, he has assured all the faculty that all this targeting and harassment does not uh, play into any of our you know, advancement decisions mm-hmm. or anything else. And, and I believe him. Um, but that doesn't mean he's going to stop, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's not going to help our younger faculty, like I said, are more likely to be uh, people of color and women to feel assured. And so, you know, there's an issue there that is is telling, right? Because this is something that black students have been dealing with as undergraduates, you know, since the beginning of yeah. time, right? Mm-hmm. Since Norman Wilson, the first black student, came in the 1930s, right? And now you see with this backlash nationally that now even faculty get targeted and harassed. Yep. Uh, and so forth and so on. Um, so you know, like Dr. King and others said, you know, you must be doing something good when people start yeah. thro- throwing those stones at you, right? Yeah, yeah. that's true. Um, that's very true. But it, it it is it is demoralizing because you know, like you know, I visited the Black Student Union a few weeks ago. You know, when you talk about data, you know, there's so few Black students at BoU. There's maybe about 400 when you add up all the different. You know, sources, graduate students, international students, you know, Afro-Latino students, multiracial Black students—maybe about 400, right? Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And that that number hasn't increased since 2017. It's just hit a ceiling Mm -hmm. and just flatlined. And the issue is not the number, right? The issue is what that number represents—that people face Mm -hmm. so much racism, um, (coughs) and not just in our church, right, but in other Christian churches and the culture to make it to BYU and then when they're here on campus. Um, and it's no surprise that black enrollment at, at selective institutions across America, including the Ivies, is down. It's only up at HBCUs. Mm-hmm. And especially the top tier HBCUs, you know, Morgan State and FAMU, especially Spellman, Morehouse, Howard. Um, their, their enrollment's going up. Their applications are going up. Because since 2020, black people are like, hey, you know, I can get a good education. I can be with people that are not going to be targeting me for my race. And I can get a good job. And we know that, you know, the HBCUs, they produce more PhDs than, uh, you know, Ivy Leagues because there's more black students. Mm-hmm. And so, do you know what I'm saying about that? It, it, right. What it means sure. is sometimes folks, when they're on their own campus or their own community or culture, they think, oh, everything's all about us. But it's like you got to step out and look at America more broadly. You can see that these issues are playing out at a wide range um, these last few years. And we haven't even mentioned COVID. That obviously through a wrench and a lot of stuff. Yeah, that's true. Uh and made it more difficult, especially for first generation students and black and Latino students, because their their parents were getting sick and dying at much higher rates, right? So they mm. had to stay home and help, work mm. another job and so forth. And that's really that's really harmed some of the goals that we've had, kind of stop some of the progress at BYU yeah. and other institutions. But that's really disappointing to see because I feel like we were making progress my first five, six, seven years at BYU increasing black enrollments, increasing diversity in other areas. Um, and then we just kind of have hit uh, a ceiling in that way. But we haven't when it comes to Latino students. That, that's going over 3,000 now at BYU. Mm. So, so it shows you there's something about race and racism there, right? Mm. Right. Um, and, and something unique to the black-white divide, both in the U.S. culture and in the church culture. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Do you feel like, um, Jessica, I think we've talked about this before, just with things post George George Floyd, I think like things have been more polarized than ever in terms of like where people stand. Like if people were more neutral, I guess, on racial things, yeah. They picked a side almost. And which is good and like, bad. Some made up their right, minds to do the right thing.
2: Right. <laughs> but then some and other so, people not so good.
0: Exactly. And so do you feel like that has contributed at all to like maybe the pushback and resistance at BYU as a whole? In terms of like, just even people, like, for example, and he's been alluding to this, just like, yeah, a lot of the backlash that professors and harassment. There's like an online petition, if you didn't know, I don't know if I was talking about this on my podcast before. There's a did, little yeah. online petition you can find like somebody is trying to stop like liberal teachings air quote at byu and they've got like a collection of videos i don't know how they've gotten access to this it's of, like, like zoom yeah,
2: recordings yeah zoom recordings i've of, been in like, a few through. of those videos myself yeah, yeah, dr Rue, really, dr yeah.
0: gabriel dr leslie hatfield rebecca de it's like all these people that are teaching air quote liberal ideas And they've got, like, people, basically, that's how they've gotten access to all these professors' information. And, like, some of the professors have had to take their information off of BYU's website um, in terms of email and, like, where their room is located Mm -hmm. because of harassment that they've received. So I say that. Do you think that, that, like, these things have made people more resistant to change than maybe before?
2: Yeah, my theory is, so 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 right quick, you go back in history, you think about the civil rights movement, right, so big. And the 19, late 60s and 70s, and what do you see? Tremendous backlash, right? Mm-hmm. War on drugs, um, mass incarceration, and especially the fight against integration, busing, and affirmative action, right? Mm-hmm. Where they make it illegal in a case in Michigan, right, to have more inclusive zoning for homes. And then the other one that didn't allow integration across school district lines, mm-hmm. right? Like tremendous backlash all through the 60s, 70s, into the 80s, you could say, Right. And so it, of course, after 2020, we had the largest multiracial civil rights movement in U.S. history. Over 26 million people marched. Mm-hmm. We had all these majority white cities like Salt Lake to Provo and places in Oregon, down to Maine, everywhere. People marched every day. My friends in Brooklyn and Manhattan, they marched every day, right? And those were very diverse places. It was not all black people, right, protesting, being killed. It was multiracial. So my, my hypothesis Right? and I don't have the time to research this now, but I'll do it with a co-author in the future, anybody who's interested in the audience, is that the backlash this time is so severe because the support is so much higher among white people. Mm-hmm. Dr. King's support topped out at about 24% of white people in 1963 with Freedom Summer, and it mm-hmm. went down to about 15 17%, right? And then, of course, it went down more when he spoke out against Vietnam, against poverty and militarism, right, and started saying, you need to, you know, you can't just let a man come get to the hamburger stand. He, need, You know, if you can't afford the hamburger, right, as he would say to paraphrase and that's not justice. He got less popular over time, right? As my friend said, you know, <laughs> Dr. King didn't end racism, right? Racism ended Dr. King, right? <laughs> yeah. You know? So that, you think about that, right? Seven out of eight white people were principally opposed to, it didn't matter as I asked the question, Dr. King, sit-ins, protests, Right. Anything. They were against that. They said it was making it worse, Dr. King. And some of those same people are still alive and they play it off. Right. And act like they're always supporting him. Right. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. And the people who genuinely repented and support him now, I welcome that, of course, every day. Today, white people are really evenly divided among Black Lives Matter. Right. About 45 percent support. And that's actually stayed the same since late 2020. It actually hasn't gone down. Right. It's been pretty flat. And that tells you something right there, too. Right. That the older people die off and the younger people come in. Right. And they replace them. Yeah. And so you have a lot more people supporting it so my hypothesis rachel about why this is so much more severe this backlash anti-crt nonsense and all these copycat bills passed by legislatures is because white people have lost the argument with their own children
0: Mm. with
2: their own family members Mm. right so back in the day you know 70s 80s 90s we had the you know Movement against BNPC, right? The movement against affirmative action, the movement against bilingualism, right? English only. We've had a lot of racist movements, right? The border, right? All kinds of stuff. But all those things were always like, well, we disagree with intellectuals over there or activists over there Mm. or academics over there or black people in the streets. We disagree with them. But now people, they're disagreeing with children in their own family. Mm. And guess what? Some of those children are so young. I know a lot of people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s in their middle ages like me who have read books and have know, as we say, where I grew up, what time it is, right? Where they've woken up and they've made mm-hmm. a choice. And they've not only flown a Black Lives Matter flag, but they've joined a protest. They have donated to a cause. They, they frequent Black-owned business, right? Um, they, they argue for reparations, right? And so with so many more white people, like you said, Rachel, who went from kind of colorblind, neutral, to saying, I got to be against this, right? It's got to affect how I vote, everything I do. You have a lot more people in their family really tripling down and some of them being radicalized online, especially we know it's mostly white males, right, by race and gender mm-hmm. into, uh, you know, Christian, white Christian nationalism, a lot of right-wing movements. And so it's, it's, it's definitely both sides. <laughs> I don't know what you want to call it. Like some type of yeah. food that you don't like one side, you like the other side. I can't think of a type of food like that both sides of the cookie, right? I remember sometimes I had those cookies as a kid like where you had the one side of the store and the other side everybody threw the other side away <laughs> they didn't like. Yeah. It's kind of like that, right? Yeah. Where one side of the cookie like people only think about the negative thing but also yeah, that's that's a backlash to the positive side, right? Mm-hmm. That you have a lot more people reading books but beyond book groups actually out there protesting, um, voting and doing what's right and taking a good class, right? Like majority of my students are still white even though it's diverse and that has just generated tremendous backlash. Because when mm-hmm. that narrative is threatened, whether it's around race and the priesthood in the temple, or whether it's around police brutality, or segregation, and housing, redlining, right, pick a topic, right, mass incarceration, we've made tremendous progress in that in last 10 years, right, people get threatened, and then they have that pushback, just like we saw with Dr. King, and the civil rights movement. Um, and so I do think that that Does that make sense? Like in terms of racial,
1: right? Right.
2: So Mm -hmm. I'm here talking to two black people, right? (laughs) And we did a little thing where students counted their Facebook friends. And they're like, Dr. Rue, how come half your friends online are are black and everything? I was like, well, let me just tell you a little bit anyway about how I grew up. But most people, the people that they're talking with and arguing with are people of their same race. And Mm. and, and in some respects, that's really good because you need white people talking to white people. Mm. And I feel it incumbent on me. I would be more comfortable in a majority black environment because that's how I grew up right? But I feel like it's a duty to, duty to warn, duty to call, what do you want to say? Duty to teach other white people, right? And majority white institutions. But the flip side of that is you often have a lot of white people just arguing with each other without those meaningful experiences across the color line. And Mm -hmm. then it leads to that backlash that I'm talking about. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. If it's white people making the right choice, and then it's other white people against them, but they only talk to white people, right? Then, then it becomes all about disagreement and, and race is always political and they always just disagree. And they don't have those beautiful experiences, right? I'm convinced that one of the antidotes, the prescription or the prognosis is that people have to have more positive racial experiences, uh, especially white people, right? People of color, by definition, they automatically have cross-racial experiences all the time because they're a minority numerically, Right. But white people need more of those experiences because they often just code race and racism as an argument, right, (laughs) on social media. And it's just like, yo, I'm too tired. I can't argue with anymore, right? Take a 28-week experience in my class. Have a beautiful experience with diversity. I mean, all the Native American students, I never knew Native people growing up, right? Like, I have learned (laughs) so much myself. And then race is about, what, spirituality, right? It's about Society it's about social, right? It's about material inequity, right? It's not just about an argument. but so many people just are so quick to argue. But I do think if you have a historic movement 2020, you will get a historic backlash. and that is absolutely what we've seen. That's not original argument. Hmm. What's original, what I'm saying is I think white people, losing the argument with their own family members generates mm-hmm. a stronger reaction because then they feel like, oh, I got to stop my grandchild from learning about Roberto Clemente in school. Right, exactly. right, Or something where, I mean, Roberto Clemente is such a beloved Afro-Latino Puerto Rican player played for the Pirates. And now in Florida, they ban all the books about him, right? And mm. you get those extreme reactions, right? Where they're banning people teaching about the Holocaust now. And Wilma, right. Rud- Wilma Rudolph, like a black track star about like sports, you know, I'm like... Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, have That's th- how I feel. Does right. that make sense? Yeah, because fallen. whenever That's they good. say protect the children, when white people say protect the children, mm-hmm. they always mean protect the white children. Yeah. And I'm mm-hmm. like, the majority of kids in K through eight are not white kids anymore, right? Let's talk but they're about not it. thinking about that, right? Yep. I'm just saying. Preach. Okay, I can't go off now. We <laughs> yeah. gotta save something for a future. <laughs> For a future episode. Oh, yeah. You will definitely be back for part two, three, you four, know? and yes. five.
1: This is, you have so much knowledge, and I could just sit here and listen to you yeah. for hours. Oh, And, we'll, and yeah.
2: we'll run some more numbers, too, you know. Oh, for sure. Yes. For sure. <laughs> but we have seen that, and a lot of my college students report back that this is one of the greatest costs of racism to white people. And Heather McGee has written a wonderful book, and I'll just preview one of my recommendations, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. But white people bear a cost of racism because it tears families apart right? Because of this disagreement, you have people who literally kind of disown and never talk to their kids again, (coughs) unfriend people, unfollow them, disown them Mm -hmm. all because they disagree about, you know, whatever the former guy or some other point of racism. And that divides white families too. And that's a hidden cost that white people often don't think about until it really comes home to them. And a lot of my students are dealing with that where they're very sincere and they are living close to the spirit. And God has told them racism is not right. And the prophet, and the NACP leader said, root out racism. And then they go and talk to their parents or grandparents and they get this basically racist backlash within their own family. Mm-hmm. So I had two more
1: questions. One, if you could just give, if, if you're comfortable with it, just giving a 30 second answer. Okay. And then we'll close out with one. Um, but you talked about, you know, the 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 teaching of, of rooting out racism within the church. Um, and then, you know, recently Elder Oaks gave a talk um, where he he said that, the Lord didn't want us to be diverse. He wanted us to be one. That could be taken a lot of different ways. Um, what are your thoughts on that comment, and how do you think it kind of fits in with, with what you talked about here?
2: Yeah. Well, we know that we can find unity in diversity, as Elder Cook has said, and as my own father as bishop said to Elder Oaks a long time ago in the 1980s. And uh, it's very consistent with some of the other messages that uh, President Oaks has said, where diversity... Uh, in in his previous talks as well, you can look these up, is something that is mentioned um, often, right? Um, But that is something that is not valued in that framework for for its own sake, where he said that diversity is a means to an end. And, um, you know, to some degree, I I agree, of course, uh, diversity is not going to save us alone. It is a means to an end. Um, But um, that's about all I'll say about that. But uh, mm, we, can, we can, of course, find unity and diversity. You can find a lot more quotes about diversity from lots of church leaders um, that are very praiseworthy and supportive. And I think, I think it's in that context of diversity not being valued for its own sake um, by President Oaks, but for something greater than that. And so I think our challenge is to kind of show how it does lead to unity and fulfilling mm-hmm. God's purposes. But, you know, the onus is on us that way, which is, which is unfortunate. That makes sense. Yeah.
0: Okay. Our last question, Dr. um, <clears throat> is what do you hope for BYU? Just, you know, again, I know it goes soon. So, and, and what do you hope to see? Or what do you think is even feasible in that hope as well?
2: Yeah. So I think feasible short-term versus long-term short-term right now, I just think we're going to keep hiring good faculty or trained, uh, not only in, in in race and ethnicity, but also gender and related issues. And they're going to teach high quality classes, the number of those classes is going to increase. Um, right now, about one in four graduates take a very high-quality class on race and racism, which is thousands of people. I, w- I want it to be the majority. Someday we want it to be everybody, but we're going to have to get there slowly. Um, a lot of people say, you know, who are in Salt Lake and other areas, oh, you just need more black people at BYU, and that will solve your problems. But I think that's completely backwards. I think if we address the issues at BYU and other PWIs, obviously, which I know Black Menaces focuses on, um that more black people will come um and that that's the way that we need to proceed so my hope is that we'll continue to have better coursework more diverse student body more diverse faculty um and eventually hopefully a a re- redesign curriculum uh, i haven't given up hope on that those are those are four of my dreams and of course we're going to be proposing more expansions to the civil rights seminar and other mm-hmm. really in-depth, immersive, experiential learning experiences that have a trade-off that you can only do so many students at a time, but all those students become agents of change. And I know the Civil Rights right. Seminars have over 200 students that are alumni now, and they're out there like you all, doing amazing things uh, throughout the world. And so you just—you can't underestimate that. So, yeah, now I've taught 3,000 students at BYU, and if each of them talk to 10 people in a meaningful way, that's 30,000 people right there.
1: Right. I love that. That's, that's the entire campus of BYU. <laughs> I, I'm just saying, <laughs> that's great.
2: you know. So, yeah, so I, I, of course, have more dreams for the future. Uh, but my colleagues, Dr. Ryan, Gabriel, and I and others, we share a vision and we talk with one another and we support one another. And as a beautiful community, no matter how small it is. And, and I think as black graduates from BYU, you know what that's like. And a lot of good can come from that. Um, and there has been progress. It's undeniable. Uh, we could have made so much more progress though. Mm-hmm. And it's really sad to see these last few years really stymie a lot of the work that we've done, which is too bad. Yep. Well, here's the hoping that that, uh,
1: that general course. Or the, the general mm-hmm. curriculum comes down.
2: Yep. We're going to keep teaching more and more students in the race and ethnicity class. If, if listeners are interested, in Sociology 323. Oh, they know. <laughs> and uh, the enrollment is- We have has,
0: promoted this class. The enrollment okay? has
2: quadrupled from less than 100 a year to over 400 students a year. So we'll we teach love as many as we can. If I need to te- get a bigger classroom, I will do that. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, sir. You should send those numbers up to the administration as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've I sent it to a few
2: people. Yes, yes. Yes.
0: You guys should see the the what they built out. Like it is again what Doctor Real was saying: the work and the evidence and the collaboration. It's beautiful. It makes so much sense. And so I share your sadness in terms of.
2: Yeah, because so because so many of so the progress that we made is a spiritual experience when people learn about how to heal about lynching confederate monuments and they hear from brian stevenson that's a spiritual experience that they have too and that's a unique thing we have at byu where we can bring in the spiritual as well as the academic and that's more powerful i think it will last longer with people and it's kind of our superpower and right now it's like people using kryptonite against that right Where we can't use our superpower and uh that's not right
0: well and that's what makes us that to me The experiences that students can have in your classroom with your coursework, to me just goes to show how deeply embedded white supremacy is in America, that it prevents people from experiencing what is offered in your classroom, in Dr. Gabriel's classroom, what you can learn from academia alone, just about racism and how embedded things are. And the fact that people can't experience that because white supremacy is so entrenched in their values, in the way that they practice, in the way that they act, and it's mind-boggling. Like, I genuinely can't understand it because it's just so important and it's so needed, and everything I've learned from sociology, the different professors I've had in the department about these issues, I'm like, duh, like, this makes so much sense, and I feel so, like, I've been equipped with the information needed to make change, and the fact that another person does not value that or does not want to experience that is I don't understand genuine I will never understand it but it just goes to show that that is what white supremacy has done to people and what it has
2: produced the hatred. Very true. Yeah, but we're all about the love here though on this podcast. Yes, <laughs> yes <indeed.
1: laughs> we're all about the love and spreading it. And uh, thank you so much for for being on the podcast. And yo, you're your so welcome. This is part one.
2: There will be many yes. more parts. <laughs> yes, more I look forward space. to that conversation. I Absolutely. will prepare. I'm for serious. Sure for sure for sure okay
0: we'll wrap up sorry we'll wrap up really with the recommendations yeah do you want to go first or do you want me to go
1: i can go first okay so my recommendation is pretty simple um i was just featured on an episode of mormon stories podcast um with john dylan and chanel achenbach that just dropped today so if you're interested in hearing my life story growing up in the church feel free to jump on and listen to that episode that's my recommendation
0: Boom. Okay, my recommendation is to go. I have the honor and privilege of being front row for the halftime performance I'm at so the All Star Game. Yeah, Nate because He was supposed to be there, but didn't <laughs> oh, make it. Oh,
2: my son pay. wanted to go to that. Oh, yeah. Man. It
0: was really good. I didn't see the game. Um, sorry to the players. Um, but I love the performance. It was so awesome. Um, burner boy, Tim's and um. Rima remote were there, who are um, all Nigerian Afrobeats artists. And it was just really iconic to have them perform, just having Afrobeats have such a huge stage in that capacity. It has really risen over the past couple of years in their popularity. So my recommendation for the week is to go find some Afrobeat artists um, who are typically they their country is not America that's where they're from and so I'm um, supporting them and learning more about afrobeats what it means to the culture and how it's helping the understanding of what it means to be black is being diversified which I appreciate and that the african american experience isn't the only experience of what it means to be black that it's it's shining a light on the experience for what you know majority a lot of there are a lot of immigrants in black america now and every black person you meet isn't african american or black american they are you know their parents normally come from another country as well so that's my recommendation for the week
1: cool. yeah and uh i'll actually i have a an afro beats playlist that i curated myself it's called my afro vibes okay it's public so i'll share that if anybody is in. if you really are wanting to listen to some afro beats that's a good place yes. to get started we'll um, put it so in the so description you can listen now. to some of the the current stuff so we'll post a link for that and I'll also post a link for my my podcast episode um dr ru what do you want to recommend to the audience
2: yeah, I recommend the book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together by Heather McGee. I recommend the paperback, the latest edition. And Heather McGee's argument is a simple one as a black woman in an interracial marriage. She says, you know, racism harms everybody in America so that if we address it, it will help everybody. And she has so many more layers and it's so persuasive. And her paradigm is one of solidarity, not of guilt, not of privilege, not of bias. But of solidarity that maps onto the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, um, and it's a powerful thesis that I recommend for everybody. And I also recommend the book that just came out, the newest, latest book. Uh, it's called Myth America. Myth America, and it's a set of chapters by historians, the best historians in America, about all the different myths that people believe, such as the good protest, uh, Confederate monuments, uh, America First, the history of that very racist phrase as well as many other topics. And uh, Myth America has been a, a great read, and we're having a little book club about that. So if anybody wants to be a part of that, just contact me. And TV I shows, I highly recommend The uh, Extraordinary Attorney Wu about the attor- attorney, Wu Young-Wu, uh, who's on the autism spectrum in uh, South Korea. And an uh, absolutely fascinating show about... Um, People with disabilities, but more importantly, about race, ethnicity, and especially gender, um, and success frames. Uh, so the less extraordinary attorney Wu, and I think you can get it on Netflix. So okay.
1: uh, I think my wife may have watched that show. Yeah, yeah, uh, she definitely has. She's signaling that she yep, watched it. Yeah, that's one of my new favorites. <laughs> and loves it. So it is. Yeah, ca- it's, uh, it's Cassandra approved.
2: Yeah, for all mankind is good too. It brings up uh, issues of racism, gender, and sexuality as well. For all mankind, it's a play on words. Um, about, you know, if women went to the moon, uh, too, and not Mm. just men from the beginning. So it's it's a good show. I won't give you any spoilers, but uh, there's some good twists in that show right there. So All right, right. not just books from The Professor. There's a couple shows for you. (laughs) Love it, love it, love it. We we are normal people, too. We watch (laughs) TV, too.
1: (laughs) We know y'all be watching Netflix, so now you have no excuse. (laughs) If you don't get the books, you got the movies.
2: Yes. Uh, Well, thank you again. It's been an honor to be on this podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Rue catch y'all next week that's
1: the show for today we were super excited to be able to talk with you about the wonderful topics of the Black Menace Podcast be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram and TikTok at The Black Menaces and subscribe to our Patreon The Menace Society for bonus content and footage of both the podcast and our videos we look forward to hearing from y'all in our email you can email us menace moments and other questions that you may have for us be sure to email Black Menace Podcast. podcast at gmail.com to get those menace moments and questions flowing into our inbox we'll answer you on the podcast and respond to you in the email
0: and remember always
1: be a menace
0: thank you guys